Welcome to the second episode of the Psychology Series and another fascinating episode of What I'm Obsessed With Now with your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. Today we are continuing on our journey into the beginnings of modern psychology. This second episode follows on from last week's episode on Freud. If you haven't checked that out, go back and take a look. Last week we looked at Freud and psychoanalysis. In this week's episode, we are looking at Freud's best frenemy and the school of psychology he developed after the split of the two doctors. Dr. Carl Jung and analytic psychology is on our radar today. These two men are instrumental to psychology. I believe looking at the two of them in more detail allows us to understand psychology better, why we are where we are and the areas that captivate our attention. Are you a Freudian or a Jungian? These two schools of thoughts become competing groups, like those who pronounce it aluminium, or incorrectly, aluminum. Even my favourite fictional brothers of psychology are divided on this, and of course, I mean Fraser and Niles Crane, of Fraser fame. Fraser, being the older, of course, is a Freudian, and the younger brother Niles, a Jungian. Toss salad and scrambled eggs. In doing research for this episode, what stood out, like with the Freudian episode, was the bleeding of common terms into popular culture. Many concepts we hear and register, but don't realise, come from either Freud or Jung. This demonstrates the impact these two have and continue to have. A note before we jump on in. Like Freud, Jung's theories are up for debate in terms of validity and effectiveness. It's important to note These men were working at the beginning of the science, when the brain was still a mystery in its function. Truth be told, there is still a lot of mystery with the spongy grey thing in your head. And speaking about mystery, an enjoyable aspect of Jungian theory is the way he weaves myth and religion into his school of thought. It was a division point for the stubborn Freud, but really is interesting for the understanding of what it means to be human. I think what Jung is explaining is the symptoms of the underlying truth. It is interesting and important, but not necessarily for the reasons he thought. There is so much to talk about. Let's get right in. Who was the great man Carl Jung? Born July 26, 1975 to Paul Achilles Jung, a rural pastor, and Emily Priswerk. They don't mention a career, so I assume housewife. Carl was their second son, but first surviving. With this joy in their heart, they originally named him Beyonce Knowles Young. Believing no one would put a ring on it with a name like that, they decided to change it to the one we know now, Carl Gustav Young. From a very young age, Carl was confronted with the mental illness of his mother. Throughout the day, she was normal but at night would be visited by spirits. Carl described his mother as being strange and mysterious after dark. An interesting point if we time travel forward to his study of mental illness and the impact that religion and the mystical has on the psyche. It's a sad story as his mother was regularly absent from his life. Sent for treatment for her mental illness, his father was not the strength that the young young needed. 
describing him as reliable but powerless. In his autobiography, Carl said his parents were a handicap that he started off life with. I'm sure many of us can understand that one. Young was an odd little child. He described himself as being introverted, which in itself isn't strange. I mean, I consistently score high on the introverted dynamic. What made him strange was that he believed he had two personalities. Young one was the schoolboy living in the present time. Personality two was a dignified, authoritative and influential man from the past. If I was to analyse the young man, I would probably say that personality two embodied the power that he lacked. He also carved a little mannequin into his ruler and would bring in bits of paper with a secret language written on it. He later linked this to totems indigenous cultures had and his ideas of archetypes and the collective unconscious was born. This ritual with the little mannequin, he said, gave him peace and serenity. I can't help but notice this again demonstrates his need for control. The mannequin trapped in his pencil case, only speaking with him, in a language only they understood. Young also experienced a period of time where he would pass out whenever dealing with schoolwork. Not from boredom, but he believed it was linked to a time he was pushed over at school and lost consciousness. He deduced this incident was indirectly his fault and the bouts of unconsciousness were brought on by the anxiety. I think this might be a lack of control issue here, but I won't harp on that point too much. He got over it because he realised he needed school to improve his life. Young initially wanted to be a preacher, then archaeologist, but his family couldn't afford to send him to a university that taught it. He finally landed on psychiatry and medicine, and a passion was born. A year in, his father died and his wider family helped pay for him to continue his study. Thank you to them. Or there wouldn't be a counterpoint to the sex-crazed Freud. (sighs) Young worked in a hospital and then in private practice. He wrote many papers and one in particular published in 1906 titled Diagnostic Association Studies, which Freud got a copy of. This was before you could just Google it. This was physical paper. Now the time you have been waiting for is here. The super twins of psychology joined forces. A strong professional and personal relationship grew and they wrote to each other obsessively. For six years, they cooperated on developing their theories and Freud even considered the younger Jung to be his successor. In 1912, Jung published the paper Psychology of the Unconscious and this demonstrated a divergence from Freud. The paper was a study of a patient's fantasies that Jung explained had significant mythological basis. He also claimed she would develop schizophrenia, which she didn't. In this instance, Freud would view these fantasies in a purely sexual context. Jung used them to explain his theory of the collective unconscious. With the publishing of this paper... Each man claimed the other was unable to admit they could be wrong. And you know what? They were both right. After the breakup, Young went on a journey to find himself and his psychological views. This was complicated by World War I. Young was married in 1903 to Emma, and this is a tough one to say, Russian Buck, seven years younger than him. 
She did say, had they kept the original name of Beyonce, she would have indeed put a ring on it, saying, it is destiny, child. She was pretty sassy. She was the daughter of a wealthy watchmaker, and when her father died, they came into a bit of money. Emma worked as Carl's assistant, throwing herself into study, and became a noted psychoanalyst herself. Carl Jung published all the way to his death in 1961 at the age of 85. He struggled with his own mental health throughout his life. He left the world with the School of Analytical Psychology and a way forward for the study of psychology. A note on Carl Jung and the Nazis. Throughout the rise of the Nazis, Jung continued to work with German psychotherapists, and his ideas on myth fell into Nazi ideology quite easily. But then again, the Nazis were good at twisting theories to fit their worldviews. Jung says he was trying to shore up an unsteady and new field of study against an upcoming earthquake. It is complicated, as Jung repudiated the Nazis and helped the Americans with a psychological assessment of Hitler. But he also wrote things like this, The Aryan unconscious has a greater potential than the Jewish unconscious. He existed in a largely anti-Semitic society, and this came out in his writings even while having friends who were Jewish. This doesn't excuse, but goes away to explaining. I don't believe he was a Nazi sympathiser, but at the same time I think he had anti-Semitic views. Both can be true, unfortunately. With an understanding of the myth, the man, Beyonce knows Young, I mean, Carl Gustav Young, let's dive into what his school of psychology is all about. Let's dive into analytical psychology. Analytical psychology, like psychoanalysis, is largely concerned with the unconscious. In particular, how what is happening in the unconscious influences your conscious thoughts, and how pathologies are developed and perpetuated. While the idea of the unconscious has not been borne out by empirical data, the idea that the brain is churning in the background does make sense at the face of it. It is an interesting concept and drives much of analytical psychology. Analytical psychology broke from psychoanalysis in 1912 when Jung went across America criticising the school. It really was a messy breakup. In particular, he criticised the Oedipus complex, aka the boys want to get it on with their mothers and the fathers want to cut off their boys' bits, and Freud's emphasis on sexuality in infants. Both were credible critiques, but Freud did not take this well, as we have seen, and Jung could do nothing else but go it alone. An interesting difference between the two is that Freud believed that your past and childhood created the future person, thoughts and behaviours. Jung concurred but added that we had the ability to shape our own futures, to be active in the way we developed. I tend to bend towards Jung here. I firmly believe that your developmental stages are critical to development. I also believe that as you age and become more self-aware, you are able to influence your own development. I think it is the reason we can arrest people for breaking the laws. If you are to say that your behaviours are the direct result of your childhood, that it is locked in, then how can we arrest and punish? 
Your actions are a direct result of your childhood. If anyone is to blame, it's your parents and their parents and so forth. Adding self-determination to this, well then you can have self-responsibility. That being said, this raises the concept of free will, which we will deftly avoid, but stay tuned as it will come up in a future episode. Another interesting difference to point out is their ideas of the unconscious. Freud thought it was a place you kept all your repressed issues. Jung believed this, but added that the unconscious held memories from our ancestral past. We'll get into the specifics of this when we speak about the collective unconscious. The key difference and reason for the split is clear. Jung dismissed the horniness of Freud's theories, and Freud dismissed the kookiness of Jung and his spirituality. From what we have seen, analytical psychology builds on psychoanalysis, bringing the human from being a sex-crazed creature to something more complex. In a perfect world, the two theories would have been balanced by each other, but just like with religion, you had to pick a side. Are you a Freudian or a Jungian? Let's dive into the key concepts of analytical psychology and see which you come out as an adherent to. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. That's what this theory could be boiled down to. Well, sort of. Okay, not really, but it was a great line. So what is anima and animus? It is a part of Jung's theory of the collective unconscious, which we are building to. Jung believed there was an unconscious part of each sex that was inhabited by traits of the opposite sex. The anima is the feminine. It is the part of the unconscious mind that gives men their feminine qualities. The animus is the part of the unconscious mind that gives women their male qualities. The theory put forward how we react to and interact with the opposite sex is directed by this subconscious structure. As with Freud, Jung believed in the power of dreams and thought that the anima animus manifested itself in dreams. Both the anima and animus have four levels of development, and dysfunction at each stage influences our interactions with the opposite sex. The first level of anima development is termed Eve. This stage is concerned with the male's need, almost absolutely from a woman. The woman is the provider of food, safety, and arguably, most importantly, love. At this stage, you need a woman, and for the most part, that is your mother. All decisions and needs are dependent on the female in their life. Dysfunction at this stage can result in a man who is dependent or repels women. The next stage is termed Helen, a call to Helen of Troy. In this stage, the female is seen as a creature of strength. They are capable of success, being self-reliant, intelligent, and insightful. This is where the concept of the ideal sexual image develops. The third stage is Mary. I don't think we need to point out where this comes from. This is where the feminine is put on a pedestal. The feminine is now seen as being virtuous, and the white of the wedding dress is apt, and this can become dogmatic in devotion. The fourth and last stage is Sophia, from the Greek for wisdom. This is where the complexity of the feminine is combined, being viewed as having both positive and negative aspects. Complex, that is an important part of this stage, the ability to see the feminine as multidimensional. 
Now, I know enough men that have never developed through the Sophia stage. I mean, religion sees the feminine as the Mary, and I don't mean just in the Mary religions. The development of the female animus doesn't get as snappy names or as much detail. If you listen to the Freud episode, you're starting to get the picture that they were people of their times and chauvinists. Also, they did rely heavily on self-analysis, and they were men. The animus is not directly in line with the anima. It's more complex because women. Am I right? Young figured that men had one image of the female spirit, whereas women have many male components. The first is the man of mere physical power. This is the wrestler, the bodybuilder, the all-man. Physically powerful creature. At this stage, he's there to be muscly and give her pleasure. The second is the man of action or romance. This is either Fabio with long locks, planning to steal you away and indulge your every desire, or the soldier, war hero, the protector. This stage is behind the woman's desire for independence and a career, because that to young is a male characteristic. I did mention they sounded chauvinist, right? The next stage is the man as professor, clergyman, or orator. This is the learned man. This is the stage at which her desire for learning can begin. If you like to learn and respect education, this is the animus with which you identify. It is here that you can relate to men on an individual level, not as a protective father or husband. The fourth and last stage is man as spiritual guide. It is at this stage that you may identify with the wise man. He is the cult leader, the connection with the spiritual world and guidance. This is why sexuality for women is linked to spirituality. The anima and animus have good and bad aspects. And this can be the cause of why a relationship with the opposite sex can be positive or negative. It is interesting to apply this to same-sex relationships and how this theory applies. Young didn't write a great deal on homosexuality, so the application of this is questionable. A step further is to think about how this would apply to transgender people. Again, here Young didn't comment. That being said, it is interesting to acknowledge that Young believed that there was feminine in the masculine and vice versa. Science doesn't support this theory. It has to be said. Males and females share more alike in the anatomy of our brain than we have differences. The variance in male and females overlapped to make the statistical differences, well, frankly, insignificant. If an alien was to land tomorrow and was told that men and women have vast differences, it would be confused at the concept. It is an interesting concept, sexism aside. What I take from this is that we all share traits, and it is incredibly unhealthy to try and ignore that. Next on the Jungian train are archetypes. This is a way to describe the human psyche and the way in which different people make decisions. The archetypes are innate and universal, coming from the collective unconscious. I promise we'll get to it soon. These concepts are important to plug into it. The archetypes come from the totality of all human history. It acts on the unconscious to be displayed as conscious behaviour. The anima and animus are types of archetypes, but what we are going to deep dive into are the 12 Jungian personality archetypes. They are ways to explain different personality types and how they are expected to react. There are many tests online, and I know they aren't scientific, 
but I'll let you know what I got at the end. Take a guess and send a tweet before you get to the end of this section. And if you take a test, let me know what you got. When I first studied this, what I found interesting was how these archetypes came up in culture. In writing and media, they keep coming up. Going back over my writing, I can't help but notice the archetypes. They make up our cultural stories and come from the collective unconscious, which we are building to so nicely. The first archetype is termed the sage, the thinker and knowledgeable type. They live for intellect and are analytical in their thinking. These are the people that can rattle off a quote for every situation. And damn it, they always have a fact to back themselves up. The sage is a philosopher. Think Plato or Locke. The next is the innocent. The optimistic, glass half full, always trying to improve on themselves. Their search is for happiness, a ray of sunshine. They don't like to feel disconnected, as connection to the world around them is key. Belonging is a key word for them. They have their rose-coloured glasses firmly on and they see the best in those around them. One of my favourite innocent characters is Forrest Gump. Always positive, even to the point of absurdity. He wanted to belong with his army mates, shrimping community or his greatest connection, Jenny. And then Forrest Jr. My favourite person who exhibits this is my wife Jade. Moving on, we find the explorer the traveller out there in search of adventure. They are willing and need to be surprised. They want to discover the new, the novel, and that goes for the external world as well as the internal. They are always searching for perfection and they will never be satisfied. A character that embodies this more than maybe any other is Indiana Jones, who else epitomises this archetype. Whether fighting Nazis, boulders or aliens, He is in search of adventure and does not have a plan. The ruler is the person who leads and takes control. They think they have the skills to bring order to a disordered world. They know what we need to do to succeed. A positive ruler is stable and strives for the best. They are the politician with a list of reasons why people should follow them. We can see and have seen how this archetype can go dark. They want to impose their rule on others. I love writing about the ruler. They are a fun character, particularly in the extreme. A positive version of one right out of my childhood is Mufasa. He leads his pride and we saw the impact of the lack of his positive leadership. And like with all good leaders, his impact lasts beyond himself. When Simba comes back and takes the role, He is displaying the positive leadership of his father. The creator can be seen as the artist. They love the new, taking something and making something completely different. They are self-sufficient, able to go into themselves for energy. They don't need to be a part of a group or do what the group does. They are often lost in thought and imagination, but this can mean they are inconsistent and delayed in delivery. Think Picasso, able to create those new creations never seen before, taking something that is old and creating his new. He was also a prick, and this seems to occur quite regularly with creator personalities. The caregiver, originally termed the mother, is just that. They take care of those around them, they can feel that they are the strongest and need to help those that aren't. 
They try to prevent harm or danger. They are the tiger mum in the extreme. They want you to be happy. That is their goal. But the other side is the person that keeps telling everyone around them how much they do for them. Guilt is strong with this one. And who is a better example than the blue-haired mum of, of all who grew up in the 90s and later, Marge Simpson? She is the prototypical mother. She just wants the best for her family, doing what needs to be done to make them happy. Marge is the mother we all want to sit beside us and tell us it'll be okay. Next up is the magician, and who doesn't like magic? They are revolutionary, renewing for all around them. They are constantly transforming in image and personality. They are characters that can bring wonder to the world. The dark for them is that their mood can be caught by those around them. If their mood goes negative, they can bring down the mood of those around them as well. When I think of the magician, I think of the little green man with the power, Yoda. His calming manner can bring down the younger, and he can see in others their potential and help them create that. And just look at what he does to the English language. Renew it, he does. The hero is able to keep fighting, keep moving to their goal, even when others want to call it quits. Honour is at the heart of their journey, but also power. Without power, you can't make change, right? They will never give up and are single-minded and this can be their negative. They see the goal they are running to and often step over other people's ambitions to achieve it. One of my favourite heroes is Lightning McQueen from the Cars movie. He displays these qualities and the negatives until he sees the light at the end of the first movie and realising that being a hero means more than winning. You have to watch the movie if you haven't. It's inspirational. And obviously Batman, but he got his own episode. The rebel doesn't care what other people think and frankly can be a bit of a prick. They provoke and go against the grain. They want to do it their way and will push back if you try and tell them what to do. The dark side of the rebel is that they can quickly become self-destructive and push those around them away. The epitome of the rebel in popular culture is Jim Stark from Rebel Without a Cause. Is there any other character who not only demonstrates what it means to be a rebel, but also the complexity that comes along with this archetype? You're tearing me apart! The lover is about feeling and sensitivity. They love to love and share that with others. Their goal in life is to be loved and love. Can I say love again? They can be indulgent, think Roman emperor being fed grapes. This is the archetype that I find the least interesting. I don't know what that says about me, but these characters are dull. For this archetype, I'll give you two for the price of one, Romeo and Juliet. They are not the smartest characters, and arguably, what happens around them makes the play interesting. But they are lovers, and want to be loved. The Joker, or Jester, likes to laugh and likes a joke about themselves. They are who they are, not hiding behind masks. They like to break down other people's walls and engage. Their goal is to enjoy life and those they love. The dark side of this is they can be lewd, lazy and lecherous. The biggest jester of my generation has to be Robin Williams, a close second being Jim Carrey. Robin Williams brought laughter and joy to so many, but his dark side was there. The jester on the face of it seems like a one-dimensional character, 
but they are able to be such engaging characters because of their complexity. I was deeply saddened by Robin Williams's passing. He will forever be a bright spot in my life. The last of the 12 is the orphan. This is the one that has damage at its core. There is betrayal and disappointment there, and a feeling of helplessness. They would like to give up control of their own life to someone else. The saying, Jesus take the will, comes to mind. The orphan will feel most comfortable around others like them, a group of victims. They want people to believe they are innocent, but have a manipulative side to them. These are hurt people, and they need help. The evil stepmother comes to mind when thinking of this archetype, or the aggrieved internet troll. These, while interesting, do lose some of the complexity of personality. If nothing else, they are a starting point to begin describing personality. In fact, they describe what we see as personality templates, better fitting into fictional and myth than to real people. Now to answer the question you have been waiting for. What archetype do I most closely align to? And drumroll please. I scored highest on the jester archetype. I agree that I don't really hide my thoughts and enjoy laughing. Not sure it's the one I would have guessed though. But you can't argue with an unscientific survey found on the internet, can you? Take a look online and see which one you would align to. But please don't take it too seriously. Our last subject before we finally speak about the collective unconscious is the concept of the shadow. This is an interesting concept and one that would fit the behaviours and beliefs of people we all know. The shadow is part or all, depending on the person, of the unconscious that the conscious mind does not identify with. This can be positive or negative, but is more often associated with the negative parts of the unconscious. The shadow is your dark side, if you will, the instinctive and irrational. It feels a lot like the Freudian id, a being of pure lust. Jung remarked that everyone carries a shadow. The shadow shows itself to us in dreams and through projection. Jung believed if we did not uncover these projections, they thicken the divide between the ego and the real world, causing harm to that person. How the shadow appears in dreams and visions depends greatly on the lived experience of the person and less on the inherited collective unconscious. So it is here that the importance of the dream interpretation raises itself. This is the way you can access the shadow and understand the conflict causing the darkness. Understanding and engaging with the shadow is not without risks. The shadow is everything you don't want to admit about yourself. Young believed that encountering the shadow was to be done with someone who understood the path. He speaks about the dark shadow being the negative outcome to shadow integration. This can display itself as feeling like everything is meaningless, and to me, sounds like he's describing depression. The engagement with the shadow can result in what Jung described as merging with the shadow. And as I explain this to you, you'll see why it strikes me as sounding like depression. Your psychic energy moves from the bright upper world and descends into the depths. Darkness in the shadows of the unconscious. You can't make decisions and your beliefs are useless. Young believed there was no certainty you would emerge from this descent into the shadow. 
It is a terrifying description of a state of mind that is experienced by people all over the world. This darkness is dangerous. Although Young explains there is no certainty that you will emerge, with help, you can. This is an important point. If you are feeling this darkness, please reach out for help. If you call it your shadow, the black dog, or depression, please get help. On a more positive note, Young believed an ascent was possible and resulted in the assimilation of the shadow. He explained this ascent has us moving up through healing spirits. The struggle here is to retain awareness of the shadow while not being engulfed in its darkness. He expressed that this requires a great deal of moral effort. At any moment, you may slip back, but through this process, much is learned about the true person you are. This is part of understanding the individual you are. Many believe this is where creativity comes from, the deep understanding of the shadow. I know for me, the moments of the darkest nights are often followed by creative explosions. That being said, the opposite is true also, being left feeling too exhausted to create. I think it's important that we don't romanticise the darkness of the shadow. Healthy people create works of genius. It is the individual, not the impediment, that creates. The shadow feels, well, like a shadow. I get the sense that Jung felt you chased it for all your life, further understanding the individual you are. The challenge is to not merge with the shadow and sink into its darkness. We have finally arrived at what I think is the most interesting and pivotal part of analytical psychology. It is incredibly interesting and leaves a fair few questions. We are at the collective unconscious. Young believed we are born with a shared knowledge and imagery. It is shared by every person due to the experiences of our ancestors. The collective unconscious is often assessed in times of crisis to guide us through. Think of it as a big storybook we all share. We can all access it even if we don't know it's there. Many people have said this is the reason why we have shared delusions. Think about how all across the world we have religion, the idea of something or things up there control everything we do down here. If we think back to our conspiracy theory series, are we accessing something in our collective unconscious and describing it as an alien or Bigfoot? Young believed the collective unconscious is displayed through archetypes, like the 12 we spoke about before, as well as the anima and animus. Now you see why we took this little journey to get us here. Amongst the ones we spoke about, Young believed that archetypes of birth, death, power and rebirth were also important. Can you think of any stories that end with a guy getting nailed to a cross that sounds like this? The Horus myth is very similar, and they both had virgin mothers. And speaking of mothers, like Freud, Young believed the mother archetype was most important. The mother archetype is shown through caring figures, gardens, country, church, and the earth. Could this be why we call our countries the motherland? The exception that comes to mind is Germany. This emphasis on mothers has to be viewed through the lens of his own relationship. It can't be avoided that he had a complex relationship and as such influenced his beliefs. Young believed that religion and spirituality, 
and all other beliefs manifest from the collective unconscious. He pointed to the similarities of world religion as an example of this. This isn't really a strong argument because some religions and beliefs are very distinct. That being said, there is a thread of powerful ones. If the collective unconscious is true, does it mean religions are right? That would be a hit to my atheist ass. Jung also believed that your morals, ethics, right and wrong came from this collective knowledge, which does bring up questions about the Nazis and all manner of evil that has existed throughout history. Phobias too can be explained by the collective unconscious, where there is fear and no known explanation. This could be us accessing the collective unconscious. Take the fear of spiders. From a very young age, children are fearful for no apparent reason. Or they have seen their parents freak out and it's a learned behaviour. I mean, look at the Irwins. They don't seem to be bothered by all sorts of crazy creature. We have a general understanding, but how do we access the collective unconscious? Could I plug into it like the Matrix and learn Kung Fu? No, but the collective unconscious is accessed through dreams. Those archetypes and other symbols popping up are a way we communicate. Jung believed that dreams are universal. If you dream about a giant pole, it'll mean the same to you and I. Although Jung did believe that the individual's experience did go a ways to how these symbols interacted. So the language of symbols is consistent, but how we use them is individual dependent. Freud would see the big pole and think wish fulfilment. Jung thought it was more complex and may be compensating for parts of our psyche. He believed that you could, through dreams, understand and treat psychological conditions. Your unconscious was accessing the collective unconscious to communicate. For the most part, the theory of the collective unconscious isn't considered settled science. It's viewed as pseudoscience for the most part. Cross-cultural studies have not borne out the idea that we all share a common set of instructions. We don't even all share the same facial expressions, so deep and detailed archetypes are even less likely. What the collective unconscious sounds like is trying to describe a sort of evolution. And this isn't the craziest idea. Turtles out of the shell can go straight to the water and swim to rather specific areas. The monarch butterfly does the same. The full length of their journey is made by three generations, and this happens time and time again. The idea that what is done well allows us to procreate and thus we keep doing it is evolution. So it makes sense that evolution would affect our psychology, but I doubt that it displays itself in the way Jung believed. I feel he took evolution, mixed it with human exceptionalism, and came up with the collective unconscious. That one generation can share information to the next is complex. Evolution takes many generations to occur, but an interesting area to look at in future is epigenetics. The short description is the ability to pass traits without changing the DNA. An interesting study I read found that overweight men were more likely to have overweight children, even if they lost the weight during the course of the pregnancy. The overweightness was important at conception. The collective unconscious is part explaining the unconscious and part trying to explain how evolution impacts us. With the information at the time, this theory is interesting, inaccurate, 
but interesting nonetheless. As with Freud, an important step in the better understanding of our own minds. Before we leave Jung, I'd like to touch on something a lot of us have experienced, but perhaps not realised that it was Jungian. That is the personality test. Have you seen people putting random letters on social media like a badge of honour? INTJ, by the way. This is normally attributed to Myers-Briggs. They took a Jungian concept and performed controlled scientific studies to come to the test many of us have taken. The person who developed the concept was our man Jung. Jung, through clinical evidence, anecdotes and introspection, developed four dynamics of personality. He believed through observation people could be characterised into these. Most of us would have encountered these under the term psychometric testing. And this is not as scientific as you would hope. Personality tests are better when performed by a licensed professional and viewed as a guide. The most important of these dynamics, according to Jung, was introversion-extroversion, or the I or E dynamic. This is describing where a person's source of energy comes from. Someone high on the introvert's side derives energy internally, needs to recharge in solar pursuit, while the extrovert recharges with others. It's important to note that these are scales and you aren't one or the other. Also, introverts aren't scared of people. As more introvert-leaning, this annoys me. The next is sensing or intuition. S or N, because we already used an I. This is about how you perceive information. If you are sensing, leaning, you believe the senses, the information from the external world. The intuition, leaning, believes the information in their own head, or through the imagination. Think scientist and philosopher. Now, as an N, I was initially surprised by this, because I like facts. But it makes sense because I take those facts, they go in my brain, and I massage them to make sense to me, or I just make stuff up. The next dynamic is thinking or feeling, T or F. This is about how the person processes information. The thinker mainly uses logic, ones and zeros. The feeling make their decisions based on emotion. This one for me is not even a difficult one to understand. I am a thinker, and I'm all about the logic. Robotic, you could say. The last dynamic is the judging or perceiving, J or P. This relates to the implementation of the information. The judger plans out, then sticks to that plan, whereas the perceiver is more likely to improvise. While I sit on the J side, this is the one I am usually more to the centre of the scale on. Either I'm good at both, or neither. A note. It does not mean you are judgmental. Even if I am judging you right now, it's not because I'm a J. P's do it as well. And just because I like to give you value for your listening time, let's play getting to know Byron through his personality type. As I said, I'm an INTJ. Those like me have an aura of self-confidence. Some have called it arrogant, but they don't know what they're talking about. We know what we know and what we don't. A perfectionist always improving, which sounds like a contradiction, but I can fix that. Being a pragmatist stops us from getting caught in the perfect being the enemy of the good cycle. We tend to have a disregard for authority, a bad boy you could say. This one is for my wife. 
For INTJs, their relationships, particularly romantic ones, are their Achilles heel. We have few strong relationships and our amazing abilities elsewhere make us think we are much better interpersonally than we actually are. It doesn't sound right to me and I should know. Little patience, hate small talk, don't understand flirting. This feels like a bit of a personal attack if I'm honest. Oh, another one for my wife. We tend to be direct and reason focused. I mean, this isn't incorrect, but it's not 100% accurate either. Like I said, it's a guide. Some famous INTJs, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Isaac Newton, Elon Musk, and Ted Kaczynski. Real mixed bag there. Oh, and if you're an INFJ, you get Hitler. Young was an interesting guy, and his theories follow in this vein. While I don't think his theories are accurate, and the science tends to agree, his thoughts really help build psychology. From Freud to Jung, we start to see how our thinking of the human mind went from philosophical to scientific, or pseudoscientific depending on who you ask. The idea of how your experiences influence you as a person is critical to better understanding of the mind. It is also the starting of treating people with psychological issues, from believing they had evil spirits to their thinking was compromised. Jung and Freud were instrumental in the introduction of talk treatment. Jung laid out a framework of how we work as a species. Well, that's what he aimed to do. What I see in his work is the surface of our human psyche or the consequence to the science we are now discovering. His was the ship floating on the ocean. He was able to see and feel the waves and he described them. He allowed us to be on that ship to move further out into the deep. Without him, we would not have thought to jump off the side and dive deeper into the mind. With that thought, we look to next week and a particular interest of mine. That is the psychological school of behaviorism. I like this one as it's based in scientific experiment. And while not having all the answers, it explains a great deal of us as the human animal and leaves behind the idea of us being something more special than a salivating dog. So keep an eye out for the episode next week. I know you'll love it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I really enjoyed delving into it. Remember to catch all the future episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcasting app, leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community. Follow the socials and join your fellow obsessives. Links in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Byron, I'm a joker, and I'll speak to you on the next episode. Produced and edited by Byron Gatt for Pinchicus Media. Sound designed by Lillian Fred. They designed the barking and I edited it out. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. Theme music from mixkit.co.